Well, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Verse you probably memorized. If not memorized, you know. Proverbs 13, 12. says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but longing fulfilled is a tree of life. What Solomon means is anticipation of something that finally comes is gloriously fulfilling. And if it never comes, it's equally devastating. Well, the coming of Jesus Christ is the most anticipated event on God's prophetic calendar, and it is the Christian's blessed hope. And while you and I as parents or maybe even grandparents can get annoyed over your children asking you on a long trip, are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Did you know that God never feels that way whenever it comes to the kingdom? Whenever we want to know, is it here yet? When is it coming? In fact, the Lord purposely stirs up our anticipation by encouraging us to pray for it. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told, your kingdom come. And then the Lord also stirs up that anticipation by telling us about it in Scripture, which, which whets our appetite for all of the aspects of the kingdom, which is what we have in Daniel 7 this morning. We said Daniel 7 is the most important chapter in the book of Daniel. It's like the spine of the book. Everything before it leads up to it, everything after it points back to it. And if Daniel 7 is the center of the book, the two verses we're looking at this morning, verses 13 and 14, they're like the epicenter. They're like the, the nucleus of, of, of this, not only this chapter, but, but the whole book of Daniel. Last week we began the, the prophetic section, which was a significant shift. We moved from the history in chapters 1 through 6 to Daniel's vision of future events in chapters 7 through 12. Gone are the third-person stories that we learned and loved from Bible school and, and enter first-person account of, of visions of great beasts and glimpses of heaven's throne room. And Daniel eases us into that apocalyptic section by, by keeping a foot in both worlds, in the future and in the past, in in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is both a vision of what is to come, but it's also a complement to the history of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's great, great statue. God foretells human history in chapter 2 and chapter 7, but in chapter 7, He reveals even more detail in this personal vision. So we said if chapter 2 was an undergrad class in world history, chapter 7 is a a graduate level course. I heard someone say that and I liked it. Both, though, describe four earthly kingdoms and the kingdom of God that replaces them all, and then it reigns forever. As we saw last week, chapter 7 changes vantage points. I mean, chapter 2, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, is told from a human perspective, and the, the earthly kings in chapter 2 look glorious and large, like a great man standing deteriorating over, over time. But in chapter 7, those four kingdoms are viewed from heaven, and they're very different. They're, they're like four unclean beasts, destructive and vile, rising and falling as the winds of heaven stir up the seas of time. Chapter 7 also grants us a lot more information about the fourth and final kingdom, the, the toes, if you will, the, the feet of the statue. And it does that because it's the most important part in God's timeline. Both of the dreams leave a gap between the fourth kingdom and the kingdom of, of Christ. It's, they're like looking at a mountain range. You, you stand back and look at it from afar and you can, you can see the mountain range, but, but it, you only see the peaks. It leaves out the valleys. What happens in the valleys between, between these four kingdoms? Um, apocalyptic literature doesn't cover because that's not its purpose. In chapter 2, Daniel sees the final kingdom as iron feet mingled with clay and, and then its end comes as, uh, from this great stone that, that comes hurling in and mashes or smashes the entire statue. But, but he doesn't go into detail about how long those, 
those iron toes will, will remain, or when the stone will crush it. it just, you get to the final kingdom, and, and it's, just, it's just there. The high points are, are hit. And in chapter 7, he gives us a little more detail. We still have a gap until the New Testament. But Daniel 7 describes a little horn which rises from the, the, four, the fourth kingdom and makes war on God's people. Seems to be winning until the Lord totally annihilates this little boasting ruler and then gives his everlasting kingdom to the Son of Man and his, and his people. So chapter 7 has three additions. There's more detail about the fourth kingdom. There's an explanation of how this final king coming from that kingdom is going to rise and make war on God's people. And most importantly, it's told from heaven's perspective. You always want to look at earthly events from heaven's perspective. You want to look from the top down, not the, not the bottom up. God's vantage point is, is always better. The chapter is broken up in, in two parts. It's pretty simple. We said there's a detailed vision in verses 1 through 14. That's what we're going to finish up today. We only got through chapter, we only got through verse 12. And then there's a disturbing interpretation in verses 15 through 28. That part of the vision leaves Daniel with some questions and lots of concern. We'll see that in the interpretation half. What we have before us today is the breathtaking part of the, of the vision. Two verses. Um, we're going to come to a screeching halt, if you will, as far as the speed in which we've been moving through this. Whole chapters at, at a time, 30-some verses, and we're going to look at two this morning. They're that important. So we saw three insights into heaven's view of uh, the earth's kingdoms, and we saw the venue of the dream, the vision of four earth beastly kingdoms, and then the vantage point of God's throne. But, but we didn't look at the climactic scene, verses 13 and 14. It's the visitation of the Son of Man, which is the, the fourth insight. And that's what we're going to look at today. We'll, we'll just call this fourth insight the, the coming kingdom of the, the Son of Man. And it begins with His divine entrance in verse 13. It centers on this royal ascension where He is presented and comes before the Ancient of Days. And then it concludes with, with His unending reign. It's everlasting and it, it's eternal. It, it won't be destroyed. In verse 1, Daniel begins by setting the, the scene for this great vision. He had a dream and that dream contained a vision. It was all the way back in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So, so we go back chronologically. Daniel sees the influence of heaven in this vision described as a great wind in verses 2 and 3, uh, churning up or stirring up the great sea, which is the, which is the earth. And, and then out of this sea, out of the earth, over time, he, he sees the rise and fall of three empires, the winged lion of Babylon, the consuming bear of Medo-Persia, and then the, the swift leopard of, of Greece. They're all like these animals. And after the third beast descends into the sea, Daniel glimpses a fourth beast that's very different from all, all the others. He doesn't even use a specific animal to describe this fourth beast because he's never seen anything like it. There's no animal in, in Daniel's memory that, that he can utilize. It has great iron teeth and it's dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It, it tears and shatters and crushes everything in its path. And, and it has many rulers that are part of its existence. They're represented in in these ten horns. But there's one final ruler that comes toward the end of this fourth kingdom that is most concerning to Daniel. In verse 8, Daniel was looking and he sees a, a little horn that rises and that grows in power. Once large, it takes over and dominates all the other kingdoms. And this little horn, just as this final beast is different from all the other beasts, this little horn is different from all the other horns. It has a foul mouth, a false mouth. It, it boasts of great things, and then with that same mouth, it blasphemes God. And as Daniel is sitting there, frightened and stunned at what he sees and hears, his, his vantage point suddenly changes. In verses 9 through 12, Daniel is catapulted, into the very throne room of God. His eyes immediately are drawn to, to one who is called the Ancient of, of Days. 
verses 9 through, through 10. There are millions and millions of angels, literally hundreds of millions of, of angels. I can't even imagine what this scene was like. There are thrones that are being set up, a lot of activity. But, but Daniel is captivated by, by this one who is the center of it all, who's, who's named the Ancient of Days, and he sits on a throne of holy fire. He enters the very throne room of God that is being prepared for judgment. Thrones are being set up. And the Ancient of Days is taking his seat. And and Daniel is just dropped in the middle of this event happening in, in God's court. And that's what he's doing. He's holding court. Look at the end of verse 10, if you would. It says, The court sat... And the books were opened. It's like what you may see in an earthly courtroom, except this is not like any earthly courtroom. Hear ye, hear ye, the honorable ancient of days is now presiding and the court sits. The books were opened. He's judging from these books. And the result of that judging is he's removing kings. He's doing exactly what Daniel said that he would do, what we have illustrations of in the first six chapters. He's he's judging and he's removing kings, and then he's doing something else Daniel said. He's setting up kings. He's about to give dominion to another one, which we're going to see today. Look, if you would, at verse 11. It says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. There's the result of the books being opened. The result of the court is judgment. Daniel kept looking, and he hears this noise in the background. He's seeing this vision in heaven and and below him on the earth. Almost like a barking chihuahua is this boastful little horn. I mean, I don't know a, a good illustration of this. Maybe it's like you're, you're engrossed in an intense movie. You're captivated by, by the scene that, that you've been waiting on. And while that's happening, your, your five-year-old is tugging on your, on your shirt. Mom, 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 and keeps doing that until you, you finally pay attention to them. Or, or maybe it's like settling into your favorite chair with a blanket and tea and a good book. And just as you get tucked in and the blanket's perfectly around you, you open the book, your dog is scratching at the back door and it keeps it up until you you finally get up and and let them out. Uh, Kind of the idea of Daniel here. He's captivated by this throne room and he has to pay attention to to this little horn. And and it just says God slays him. He throws his body into the lake of fire that burns. Not the best thing to do to your dog, by the way, that's scratching at the door, but very fitting for this little horn. Here's an example of how chapter 7 is like the bridge between the history section and you see those themes being worked out in the vision section. You remember the theme of chapter 4 and 5? Two kings were judged, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And there's a, a, in this vision here, God does it again with this future kingdom that is to come. And that's what's happening in verse 11. This, this king, is, this third king is being deposed, just like Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar. And look at verse 12. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. He's taking more kings down. But an extension of life was granted to them for... For an appointed period of time. The rest of the previous kings were destroyed. This is like an excursus, like a parenthesis. The rest of the kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, they weren't destroyed like this this little horn of this fourth and, and final kingdom. They merged into the next empire. Babylon falls, and everybody that's part of Babylon merges into the Medo-Persian Empire. Medo-Persia rises, and, and then when, when it's removed, it falls and it merges into Greece. And then the Greece merges into to Rome and on and on and on until this, this final one, though, with this final ruler, he's totally done away with. It's one of the ways we know that it hasn't happened yet. And we also know that it didn't happen in 70 A.D. because the Roman Empire continued for hundreds of years after the destruction of the temple in, in 70 A.D. 
Whatever is described here with this fourth beast, his kingdom is completely removed. He, his dominion is gone and he's thrown into the, the lake of fire. Just as God removes kings, though, he, he also has authority to set them up. And that's what you see him doing next. So after this fourth king is removed, he gives dominion to, to another and we'll, we'll meet him today. And the first thing that, that you see is a divine entrance of, of a new person. This person comes in a sign of clouds. He's identified with the title of Christ. And he bears testimony of closeness with the, with the ancient of days. Look at you at verse 13. As I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now don't miss the order of things here, because it's important. Verses 11 and 12, there's, there's a courtroom and a judgment scene, and judgment is passed, and it takes place. And then, in verses 13 and 14, you have a coronation scene. A, a new king is being crowned, and this new king is different from, from all the others. He's an eternal king, possessing an everlasting kingdom which will never end. That's what verse 14 says. But chronologically, that happens after this final earthly kingdom of the Antichrist is destroyed. The little horn is given to the fire. And with that, we transition from the kingdoms of men to the kingdom of God. The last kingdom of, of mankind led by the Antichrist is destroyed before the heavenly kingdom that never ends comes. I want you to notice the sign of this kingdom. How do we know it's a heavenly kingdom? Well, we have lots of clues here, but here's the first one. It just shouts at us. See, the sign of this king will be his arrival in heavenly clouds. Look at verse 13 again. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. The phrase, I kept looking. This is the ninth time so far. He's going to use it more. But the ninth time that Daniel uses this phrase in, in verse 7, it's, it's, like his, it's like his progression phrase. I, I, I looked and I saw. I looked and I, I saw. I kept looking. I kept looking. And, and as he keeps looking, he sees more and more. God reveals more and more. But what he sees in this scene is, is the key. The phrase coming with clouds of heaven is specific. It's... Uh, the word for coming, the, the action there is a participle. It's, it's like Daniel was looking. I kept looking and, and he sees this being moving into the throne room with, with divine majesty in a very familiar way. It's, glory is all around him. And it's a way that, that Israel has seen God many times. The glory of God engulfing him as, as he comes. Someone coming in the clouds of heaven in the Old Testament, and in the New for that matter, represents a divine figure in, in Scripture. And God's very presence is, has been identified throughout the Old Testament this way. This wouldn't have been... I mean, what Daniel sees surely is shocking, but, but he, this would have been a very familiar scene. God identifies this way, which is how He's seen by mankind. How did God lead Israel in the wilderness and out of Egypt. He did so by, in a cloud by day and, and one by fire at night, Exodus 13, 21. The Lord was going before them in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and led them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light and they might, that they might travel by day and by night. And, and you remember what Moses said, Lord, if you don't go before us, we don't want to go. Well, how did God go before them? He, he went before them in a cloud. And, and when God inhabited the, the tabernacle and then the, the temple, He was manifest as a cloud of glory. And Numbers 9, 15 is an example. In the day that the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up, the cloud covered it and appeared like fire above the tabernacle from evening and, until morning. In the sad verse, in Ezekiel, when God's glory leaves the, the defiled temple, you, you, the cloud departs. Ezekiel 10, 14. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the, the cherub to the, to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud. 
And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. It, it, it moves out. That's the same symbol in the New Testament. You remember when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the mountain? A cloud appeared in heaven and engulfs them whenever God speaks in Mark 9, 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him or hear Him. The significance is not the, the vision, it's, it's His words. But the vision was that of a cloud. And how are we going to be gathered up when the Lord calls away His church? 1 Thessalonians 4.17 And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those are not cirrus or cumulonimbus clouds. This is the glory cloud of God. You'll be, be caught up with the Lord, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So it's no coincidence here that the Son of Man enters in clouds of heaven. J. A. Emerton said, if Daniel 7.13 doesn't refer to a divine being, then it's the only exception out of over 70 passages in the Old Testament. All passages in the Old Testament refer to a divine being. So whoever this is, he's divine. But he has a title as well, which gives us even more identification. Look at verse 13 again. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So he's coming with the, the sign of clouds, and he's given the, the, the description of Christ, which becomes the title later. It, it's the identity of who he is. It, it, it's not the title yet, but it's the title that the Lord takes in, in, in the New Testament. Now remember our, our symbolism, the word like. It's this one like the Son of Man. So it's just the description of him here. So this person is both design, uh, divine because he comes in clouds, but he's like the uh, Son of Man. He's like, like someone with human traits. He's both God and man. Sound like anyone you know? Amen. Stephen Miller said that there are three common views of who this person is. Two are dead wrong. Some argue this is Michael the archangel because of the, the clouds of, of heaven. It's like one of the highest angels. The Jewish interpretation, the Jewish interpretation today of Daniel 7, the common, is, common interpretation is this is a personification of the Jewish nation. That's what you see here. There's nothing in this text that would indicate either of those. This is a single person. So if it would be Israel as a nation, it would, be, it would have been plural, and it would have been like the, the sons of Jacob, not one like a son of man. And not only that, whoever the son of man is, all the nations worship him in verse 14. So Israel's going to have a prominent place in the kingdom, but, but worship is ascribed only to God key tenet of Judaism. There's something even more specific that tells us who this is. Whoever this is, he's not only divine, but, but he has human attributes. And the New Testament tells us his name. The Gospels, Acts, the book of Acts, Revelation, and even two apocryphal books identify this as a messianic verse. Jesus Christ receives the title and takes the title, the, the Son of Man. But more importantly, he identifies himself as this very figure in an unmistakable way. I mean, there's no way that you can miss what Jesus is, is saying. In Mark 14, do you remember whenever the Lord is arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, he's arrested in the middle of the night and he has this trial? It's a corrupt trial. And the rulers are bringing false witness uh, against him. And as they keep bringing false witness, they keep trying to get, find witnesses that agreed, and the Lord remains silent during all of the false accusations. Mark 14, verses 56 through 59. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. 
Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. This is going on and on. And, and, and the high priest, who's, who's presiding over the trial, he's trying to look like he remains biased, uh, uh, unbiased, I should say. He stands on the sidelines. He feels the trial slipping away or just gets frustrated. I don't know which. He stands up. He takes over the trial. In verse 60, he says this to Jesus. He demands that Jesus identify himself. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. That's the Lord. Until this. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And in Matthew's version... He put the Lord under oath whenever he asks it. Matthew says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And the question that Jesus has deflected publicly until now, because that's not why he came. You remember, they tried to make him king in Galilee. He now answers under oath, invoking God's name. And look at what Jesus says. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. So bound by the law not to bear false witness, Jesus ignores the false accusations but answers this one under oath truthfully truthfully and directly. And he quotes Daniel 7.13 whenever he does it. Also, Psalm 110, it's a combination between the two. And the response of the Jewish high priest tells us the interpretation of the day. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying because they knew what Daniel 7 meant. Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him saying he's deserving of death meaning he was claiming deity for himself. They knew what the clouds of heaven meant. They knew exactly what Daniel 7 meant, that this was the Messiah. This passage is not about an angel, uh, Michael, or, or the nation of Israel in Christ's day. It's, it's not about any of those things today. It's the identification of Jesus. In fact, verse 13 of Daniel 7 is the most quoted verse from Daniel in the New Testament which tells you everyone knew these passages spoke of a messianic king, which is why the Lord uses it and uses the title, the Son of Man, for himself so many times. This divine figure with human attributes is also worthy. There's a testimony here about how close he's pictured with the Ancient of Days. Look if you look at verse 13. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves in Scripture because good hermeneutics interprets the passage in front of us based upon the principle of progressive revelation, which just simply means God unfolds His plan over time. So we must look at this text. Uh, So what Daniel understood was based on what God had revealed to him in his time. And that obviously would have been less than what the disciples would have understood, say, like in Acts 1, or what John gets in in Revelation. Scripture is progressive. God progressively reveals things about His plans. Just like we said, there are mountain peaks and, and there are valleys. What does Daniel show us, though? Daniel 7 shows us that that here's a God-man and he's being presented to the Lord who is already on the throne, the Ancient of Days. So this divine human being is, is being presented to God. Came up to the Ancient of Days. This is one of the unique places in the Old Testament where the first and second person of the Trinity are found in the same scene. And this scene is seen, again, with greater detail in Revelation 4. In fact, it's the exact same vision. I want you to turn over to Revelation 4 this morning. Revelation 4, we'll be back to Daniel 7 in a minute. Look at 
But Daniel 7 and Revelation 4 are the exact same scenes. Progressively revealed. So Daniel 7 is a condensed form. Revelation 4 and 5 is the more expanded form. God, God opens up the accordion, if you will. Here's another vision. It's the identical scene. One preacher I was listening to this last week said it was like both John and Daniel are on the opposite sides of the throne room, separated by hundreds of millions of angels. They can't see themselves. But they're writing about the exact same thing. Look at Revelation 4.1. And after these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. So he's seeing into heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. It's a future event. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing, and one sitting on the throne. And he who sat was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like emerald in appearance, and around the throne were other thrones, 24 of them to be exact. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed with white garments and golden crowns on their heads, and out from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals, of sounds and peals of thunder. Sounds a lot like Daniel 7, 12 through 13, doesn't it? God on His throne. There are other thrones, but now we, we know that there are 24 of them. God's radiating glory everywhere. John tries to describe it as, as like, like diamonds and, and lightnings, and Daniel describes it like fire blazing. Look at Revelation 5.1. The scene continues. Here's the Son of Man being presented, this condensed seen at the end of verse 13 in Daniel 7. Here it is, expanded. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, it's the Ancient of Days, a book, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break the seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to look Open, was, was able to open the scroll and look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. Here is the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days. Look at you at verse 6. And I saw between the throne, four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And here's the worship. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And here's the kingdom. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth, literal kingdom. There's the judgment and the kingdom that he was granted. The scroll is the title deed of the earth and what follows is worship and, and then this kingdom. It's exactly what Daniel sees in chapter 7. Turn back to Daniel 7. That's exactly what Daniel sees next. This king is crowned by God himself. He's a He's able to approach the Ancient of Days. He's worthy to take the scroll, the testimony of His closeness, the divine human figure. And He's a royal figure. Here's His ascension. Daniel sees His royal ascension. He's granted dominion and He's given worship, just like Revelation 5. Look at verse 14. And to Him was given dominion 
glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. There are three things bestowed on the Son of Man here. Dominion, which is ruling authority. Glory, which is the honor that accompanies that. And and a kingdom, which designates uh, the rule of His government. It's a contrast to all the other earthly kingdoms. Leon Wood said, Christ has granted all the features of absolute rule in parallel to the rulers of the preceding empires. All the four kings of, of earth descend and lose their thrones. This king, though, is given all thrones. He has full dominion. All honor is given to him. And notice he receives a real kingdom. Not a spiritual one. Now think about this. All the other kingdoms described in Daniel 7, they're real earthly kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom was a real earthly kingdom. The Medo-Persian empire was a kingdom on the earth. Greece and then Rome, these are earthly kingdoms. So when you get to the messianic kingdom here, it makes no sense to switch metaphors and think this is spiritual only. In fact, there are real people here in verse 14. That all peoples, all of them in fact, and they're giving real worship. They, they serve Him, that they might serve Him, verse 14. And it's given to a real king in a literal kingdom. It consists of languages and nations. And these people are serving and worshiping in verse 14. The Aramaic verb is used nine times in Daniel, this one serving here. This kingdom is given that all people's nations and men of every language might serve Him. All nine times it's used in Daniel, it means paying reverence to a deity. So it's worship. And this kingdom is over all the earth. All peoples and nations and languages will worship Him. That's what verse 14 said. But did you notice something else? We're just covering two verses because it's that important. You may not have noticed this. I didn't until I studied Daniel 7. Someone pointed this out to me. Do you find it interesting that a topic that theologians have have debated for years is presented here just so matter-of-factly? Here's the, the divine human figure coming to the Ancient of Days, being given an everlasting kingdom and... I mean, is Daniel a mill? Is he pre-mill? Is he post-mill? Is he, you know, whatever mill is, is out there? I mean, there are verses and verses and verses in, in Daniel 7 about the, about the fourth kingdom and the Antichrist. I mean, that's the dominant theme of verses 18 through the, or uh, verses 15 through the end of the book. There's not a lot of explanation about this scene. I mean, Daniel just reports it as a fact, as he reports what he sees. Daniel himself doesn't even have a lot of questions. All of his questions are about the earthly kings and not one about this heavenly kingdom. Do you find that odd? I do. The most important part of the chapter, Daniel has no questions about. Look at verse 19. Here's the question that he asked. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze that devoured and crushed and trampled, and, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the, and the other horn which came up. I mean, Daniel's concern and question surrounds the fourth beast and the little horn because it's something that hasn't been revealed yet. All that's new information to Daniel. But this is not new information to Daniel, and that's the point. He asks no questions about what he sees here in this coronation scene of heaven. And that's because not only Daniel, but every Jew that would have been reading Daniel already knows that God promised an earthly kingdom with a messianic king that's both divine and human. So there's no explanation necessary. The idea that there's going to be an earthly kingdom for Israel that never ends with a divine... Messiah, one who is like God and man ruling over it, is common doctrine in the Old Testament, which is why there's no explanation or questions. It's not a Christian invention. It's not a premillennial adventure. This is basic Old Testament truth, and everyone would have understood that. And then the New Testament confirms that 
because it picks up exactly where the Old Testament leaves off, assuming that as well. How did John the Baptist come? What did he come preaching? He came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent, to prepare for it. He was calling people to repent. And when Jesus arrives after he's baptized, he goes to Galilee and immediately begins preaching the kingdom of God. And when they try to make the Lord king in, in Galilee, he refuses because that's not why he came this time. But it becomes evident that everybody's looking for a king and everyone's looking for an earthly kingdom. And it's evident even after the resurrection, the disciples are looking for an earthly kingdom related to Israel. In Acts 1, you remember what they said after Jesus rises from the dead, right before the ascension. Is now the time you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' reply is, it's coming. It's just not now. Just like Daniel 7 says, it's coming. It's just not now. It's delayed. Even though the king has come. That king comes the first time and makes it possible for, for subjects to become citizens through the cross. And then he sends out messengers. That's what the book of Acts is all, all, all about. The message is the king has come and he's coming again. So, so repent. The kingdom is unfolding in the book of Acts. Subjects are being gathered and the king is reigning in hearts. And those hearts are waiting for the blessed hope when this triumphal king will return. And then his kingdom will not just be over hearts but over all the earth whenever He comes again. It's very evident that Jesus and His disciples are either premillennial or postmillennial. They expect a kingdom. If they're all millennial, they're not very good ones because they're talking about an earthly kingdom all the time. They're very confused. And when you look at the book of Revelation, I think you find the distinction between pre and post. The king comes prior to the kingdom, just like in Daniel right here, the order. And then He reigns with His people on the earth in Revelation 19. And you can see that right here in Daniel 7. As the last earthly king is deposed, this heavenly king is established with a, an everlasting kingdom, which is the final component that Daniel sees. He sees his unending reign. Its extent, the kingdom is an everlasting dominion and its, its eternality, it, will not pass away. That's what Daniel sees. Look at verse 14 again, second half of it. His dominion, beginning to describe this, this kingdom that's made up of all peoples and nations and men of every language that are worshiping Him. His dominion that He was given is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Just like it's not a new thing, for God to appear in a cloud, heavenly clouds, it's not a new thing for God to set up kings and give dominion to kings. That's what He does throughout the entire Old Testament whenever the Davidic dynasty happens. He, he anoints them as king. God was always the ultimate king, but the human ruler would represent Him. He was a vice-regent. He was a he had delegated dominion in God's stead, but there's something very different about this scene, about this king. All of those kings, whether David or Josiah, were anointed on earth. This king is anointed in heaven. That's where the coronation takes place. And all of those earthly kings, Hezekiah, Solomon, they had limited dominion. But this king is granted dominion that is never removed. It's everlasting. And all of those earthly crownings look forward to this one, this king, and this kingdom which will never end. That's what Daniel sees and that's what he reports. But there's more to the story, isn't there? We don't end at Daniel 7. We have the New Testament. And remember I told you that apocalyptic visions purposely hit the high points and they skip over the details in the, in the valleys and that Revelation is progressive. So Daniel has... Only part of the story here, and then the New Testament adds to it. The New Testament and the Gospels pick up where Daniel leaves off. They're still expecting a kingdom. But the New Testament fills in the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And if you know who that is, you dated yourself. The Gospel picks up the Old Testament promises of the kingdom at hand, but the book of Acts takes it from there. The ascension in Acts 1 is a pivotal scene. 
about kingdom theology. It not only confirms that this is the Messiah in Daniel 7, but, and that there will be a literal kingdom, that's what they're looking for, but Acts 1 declares that there will be two separate phases to the kingdom. It advances the story. One phase that was inaugurated with the first coming, and the death and resurrection of this king, and then the ultimate fulfillment at the second coming. Look, if you would, at Acts 1.9 and see if you can hear Daniel 7 here and how it advances the ball. This is after Jesus has the dialogue with the disciples. He takes them there. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And they say, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And after that, after these things, he said to them, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood, that, uh, stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way, in like manner, as you have watched him go into heaven. Hmm. So the disciples were confused, and Jesus corrects them. They're expecting a literal earthly kingdom given to Israel. Uh, they knew Daniel, so they should expect a kingdom. Just like the high priest expected that and knew exactly what Daniel meant when Jesus quoted it. And the king has come, and, and now what's supposed to happen is the, the Old Testament promise. But they're given new revelation right here. And what did the angel say? I pointed out the symbol. A cloud received Jesus out of their sight, and the angel says, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing? This same Jesus will come again in like manner. He'll come in clouds in the same way. This same Son of Man will come again in clouds of glory, just as Daniel foretold. And the king will be coronated then and given a kingdom with a dominion over all the earth, a kingdom which has no end. So Daniel skips over this. He, he, it's in the valley. Here's the fourth king and the horn. It's coming at the end. We don't know how long this last fourth empire is going to last, but we know whenever the end comes, there's going to be a, a one-horned ruler, the Antichrist, which will speak boastful things and deceive, and he will make war against God's people, and then that king will be taken down, and then Jesus will come in like manner, just as he went up in the ascension in clouds of glory, just as Daniel says here, and his kingdom will have no end. And what the Old Testament in Daniel 7 leaves out in this gap, in this undisclosed period of time, that's what Jesus means when he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set in his own counsel. And that mystery is now being revealed right, right there in Acts 1. And then exactly detailed in Revelation some 60 years later in the Isle of Patmos, progressive Revelation. And did you know Revelation 1 describes a picture of Jesus just like you find him in Daniel 7? It says he comes in the clouds. It's a future event when Revelation was written. And then the rise and the destruction of this little horn is graphically described. And finally the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is detailed in Revelation 19 and 20. Right now we're between those comings. Which means he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to come exactly the way he ascended in clouds of glory and every eye will see him. And what you have to decide today is when he comes again in those clouds of glory, is he coming as your king or as your judge? Will you be part of the kingdom of men that are just, that's judged and burned with fire? Or will you enter the, the kingdom of Christ that never ends? Is he someone that you're anticipating? 
or someone that's going to disappoint you, devastate you, because what you hoped in, the earth, yourself, your goodness, whatever, is devastated like Proverbs says. And the way you get in that kingdom now, even before it comes, is through bowing the knee to the king. You see, witnesses have been sent out while we're waiting on this kingdom to say, Jesus of Nazareth was this divine God-man who lived the perfect life, kept the law, died in your place so your sins could be paid for. He earned your righteousness. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And He calls anyone who will repent and believe in His name to come. He'll save you, forgive your sins, wash them away, and make you part of this kingdom. Then you too will have that hope. Let's pray. Lord, you teach us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the kingdom to come. But while we wait, we keep your word in our heart. We are your witnesses. We, we tell others of what you have accomplished in the past, what you've promised in the future. And we've done that even this morning. We'll do that this week as we go home and to work and with our family. Help us to be faithful witnesses. Lord, we long for the day when we'll see your face and your kingdom will come. Um, this world will not get better till the Prince of Peace reigns. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing. I, King of Heaven, when victory is won, may I reach heaven's joys, O oh, bright heaven's sun. And heart of my own heart, whatever before, still be my vision, O oh, Amen. Don't forget tonight, not in here, but in the other building, we'll all gather together in the, the main sanctuary, the main room. We'll sing a couple songs together. We'll break up to our equipping classes. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. So there was an announcement about the children singing and uh, also uh, parent dedication, baby dedication, child dedication. If you want to participate in that, let us know. Father, we, we love you and we pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.